I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome, everyone, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. It's just going to be me, Eric, today. Uh, I'm actually going to be doing a talk that I did at the Sound Education Conference, where unfortunately we did not get video, but I wanted to share it with you guys. In particular, I wanted to share this because after one of our more recent episodes about tribal flippage, we got a note from someone that said they were kind of frustrated that we were making generalizations about tribes that this person felt like didn't um, didn't correctly describe anyone in their life, anyone in their family, any of their friends, and therefore it felt disingenuous. It felt too you know aggressively stereotyping. And I decided that this talk that I gave at Sound Education was actually going to be uh, particularly appropriate as a response. Um, my first response that I want to give to this is that, you know, I guess, con- you know, congratulations um, that you, you have, and I mean this super sincerely, that you have a group of people in your life that buck the trends of the tribes, that don't fall into tribal warfare. The reason I want to give this talk in particular is because I want to draw the difference between the political tribes that dominate so much of American national political discourse and contrast that against what most Americans actually believe and think about. So the key point of this is that there is a real gap and it's not so much between left and right. It's between the hard partisans of the tribes and most Americans who aren't these hard partisans, some of whom have been hijacked into supporting these hard partisans. But the gap really exists between those hard partisans and the people who have more complex, more mixed, less hardened, less sure of themselves opinions about how the world should work. One of the points of the last of that episode about tribal flippage was that these people who hold these very strong, very firm, uh, very loud, very angry opinions can flip those opinions and be just as angry and loud and you know even outrageous about them, uh, even though it's the opposite. But most people don't exist in this space. 
So I'm going to walk through this talk to show you guys how that works. And for those of you who uh, do follow us on YouTube, we almost never post anything because we don't make videos, but I'm going to post this as a video with a bias towards podcasting. Uh, it's not going to be nearly as good as doing it live because live, I like to be very interactive, but you know, that's the benefit of actually coming to a live show. So one of the places that I like to start here is by asking people in the audience a poll. What percentage of Americans do they think are pro-life versus pro-choice? And if I'm in a very uh, left-wing audience uh, or a right-wing audience, I always get the same split. Some people believe that their position is very much in the majority. So, um, you know, you might say pro-choice is 75%. Um, and some people will believe that their position is very much in the minority, uh, that they're surrounded by people who disagree with them. Um, and some people say, you know, straight up, uh, you know, 50-50. And it turns out that if we look over time, uh, recently it's been fairly close to 50-50. It's bounced around a lot. But what's interesting is that in the mid-1990s, we started to see this convergence where uh, it used to be the case that most people identified as pro-choice and only about a third of people identified as pro-life. But then over time, up until over the, that period of the 1990s, until about 2002, that converged down so that it was, it was very much even. There's a little bit of bouncing around, but um, they're sort of neck and neck these days. So it seems like people's opinions have changed dramatically, that we've become more polarized. We used to agree more, and, and now we disagree. And so I then asked people in a poll, what do you think... Um, you know, how do you think people f actually feel about the legality of abortion based on what we saw before? Do they, what percentage of people believe that abortion should be legal all of the time, some of the time, or none of the time? And again, here, the, the answers are very varied. Uh, this much more so depending on, uh, depending on where we are giving the talk. But people often look at the fact that it's about 50-50 pro-life, pro-choice, and they'll say, okay, well, the pro-life people, they don't want abortion to be legal ever. So 50% uh, never, and then a split of 25-25, sometimes maybe. Um, other people look at it and say, well, pro-choicers pro never want restrictions on abortion. So it must be 50%, at least 50% say abortion should be legal all the time. And then there's a split between some of the time and none of the time. And what we actually see uh, is that 50% uh, is true. Do you say that abortion should be legal under any circumstance? Um, and then 30% say some circumstances and 20% say uh, illegal in all circumstances. And so, of course, this sounds pretty firm, but, uh, but of course, what do we really mean? When we say legal under any circumstances, does that mean that more than half of Americans believe that, you know, two days before birth, um, you know, someone can go get an abortion. Maybe not, right? It's not actually a particularly well-defined poll, even though it seems so initially. And then, of course, what's interesting is even though 50, about 50% 50 of Americans are pro-life, only about 25% of Americans say that abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. About 80% of Americans believe it should be legal at least some of the time. What's particularly interesting about this is this split has not changed. So if we go back into the 70s, the 90s, 
It doesn't matter. It's been about the same. It's been about 50%, say, legal under any circumstances, and then that about 30-20 split. And so what that means is that even though um, even though people's identities have changed going from you know pro-choice to pro-life, their policy positions have not changed. They just changed how they identified without changing how they feel about the policy issue itself. Uh, and then finally, I point out that similarly with Roe v. Wade, um, uh, people are asked, do they think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned? Um, it's been very consistent that somewhere between 50 and 60% say, no, Roe v. Wade should not be overturned. Somewhere between 25 and 30% say, yes, it should be overturned. Uh, but then there's this growing minority of people that actually have no opinion. Um, that's gone from 4 to 18%. And so, you know, of the pro-life people, only a portion of them believe that Roe v. Wade should be overturned, whereas probably all of the pro-choice people say it should not be overturned. Um, and the only, the only reason that uh, both of these groups have declined in total numbers is that uh, many more people have no opinion. It may be that they don't understand the, uh, you know, it's been so long, they don't understand the ruling all that well. Um, it may be that their feelings about it are complex, um, you know, because they may be thinking about the constitutionality of it. Who knows? Um, and then finally, we can ask people a more granular question about abortion than just always, sometimes, never. We can ask them, uh, we can frame it as saying like, hey, the Supreme Court under Roe v. Wade said abortion is legal without restriction um, in about the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. Some states have passed laws reducing this to 20 weeks. If it had to be one or the other, would you rather have abortions legal without restriction up to 20 weeks or up to 24 weeks? And 55% of Americans say up to 20 weeks, 30% say up to 24 weeks. So we now have 85% of Americans who are ready to probably bitterly fight over this four-week block, but would generally be willing to say we should have some restriction, some cutoff, and it should not be all that early. It's, it's fine if it's 20 or 24. Several percent say they're unsure. 7% say, you know what, this is not okay. It should never be legal. So we've now gone down from about 20 to about 7%. And 1% say it should always be legal. Um, and in part here, we see this reduction from 50 to 1%, in part because of the framing, but in part because we're, when we're talking about restrictions, we're just talking about, hey, it's, at what point is it so late that you know, potentially the fetus is viable? And so what we see is that as we make these issues more nuanced as we start asking more interesting questions about them, people's opinions morph dramatically. Their opinions become more nuanced and we see more room for agreement. And we see that repeatedly, um, issue by issue, that the tribes, the pro-life and the pro-choice tribe, um, you know, that what you hear about them in the media is very hardline, very angry, very loud, uh, very uncompromising. When, when we get down to it, most Americans have nuanced and potentially even internally contradictory views about an issue as seemingly divisive as abortion. And this place to agree on an issue seemingly as divisive as abortion. Then the last poll I ask people about is I ask, how important do you think abortion is to Americans? That is, what percent of Americans do you think say abortion is the most important issue to them? And a lot of people sit there and think about it. They say maybe it's 20%. Maybe it's 10%. Um, some go as low as 5 Some go as high as 40 And then we reveal the numbers. And it turns out that uh, 
abortion doesn't make any cut above 2%. So this is a poll that said anything under 2%, um, we didn't uh, we didn't count. And there's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 issues uh, that make the 2% cut. Abortion is not one of them. Similarly, guns uh, and gun violence does not show up there, nor do LGBT issues. So all this stuff uh, is very much missing when people are forced to prioritize what's actually important to them. They say um, education, you know, in ascending order, um, education, terrorism, employment, healthcare, the economy in general, and the top one, dissatisfaction with government. So these are the things that are really driving people at the end of the day. Uh, this is the stuff they really care about when they have to sit down and think about it. So if we look at gun control, so there's another issue that didn't make the cut. You know, we can ask, do, should, we ask people, do you think that uh, gun control should be uh, more strict, less strict, or kept the same? The smallest group, um, which is consistent over the past 20 years or so, you know, says keep it the same. It's fine as it is. And then we have another split um, of more strict versus less strict. Used to be um, that more strict had the majority at 62%. Um, that's been reduced to about 47%. Um, and the less strict crowd has gained a little bit. They're at 38%. So 14% right now say keep it as it is. 38% say less strict. 47% say more strict. So we have you know nearly majority for gun laws being more strict. But there's all sorts of options here. Uh, does anyone think that literally every gun law should be more strict? Uh, or how many people would think that? And does everyone think that literally every gun law should be made less strict? Can you perhaps believe that some laws should say the same, some should be more strict, and some should be less strict? So this, you know, this kind of poll does a great job of asking people to take a side in the tribal war, but it doesn't really get into any interesting nuance about um, how you know someone might actually feel about policy. So if we instead ask people about specific policies, there are some policies where, pe- where people are very split, but somewhere they very much agree. 96% of Americans favor background checks. 93% say that the mentally ill and felons shouldn't be able to get guns. 78% believe that all guns should be registered. Only 8% think there should be no guns, period. The vast majority of Americans think we should be allowed to have guns. Um, The stuff that people are split on are limiting the number of guns each individual has, banning high-capacity clips, and banning semi-automatics. And I suspect with the last one, there's some confusion over what semi-automatic means. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's famous fully semi-automatic gaffe being just an example of how um, you know, the terminology is discussed in a, a confusing way. Uh, so some people, uh, I suspect some people both on the favor and opposed side of that one may not understand what a semi-automatic weapon means. Um, you know, but we can have some healthy debate around, should we ban high capacity clips? How much damage should they really do? This is something that I read about in Wedged at some great length. Um, but here what it shows is that almost no American is just totally more strict all the time or less strict all the time. Uh, There's a wide range of agreement over certain policies that could potentially, uh, you know, the research, the research is, is out there could potentially make Americans safer while potentially, you know, ensuring the rights of, of good law abiding gun owning citizens. Right. So what I want to talk about in particular in response to um, what 
what that listener said when they wrote in was that, um, you know, and those of you not seeing this, it's worth seeing. I'll, I'll link this image, but we call it the green fog curve. Um, and the basic idea is that uh, the distribution of political opinions in the United States is a bit of a bell curve, right? There's, there's some people in the middle and some people on the right and some people on the left. And people on different issues end up in different parts of it, usually leaning one way or the other, right? But uh, not necessarily, you know, they're not all, most people are not all the way lumped on the far right or the far left. But we overlay on that bell curve distribution of the national engagement, of how much the attention they get, how much noise they get to make, how much, you know, they're, they're blared on the media and politics. Um, and this is lumpy. There's a big lump on the left and a big lump on the right um, and nothing in the middle. So uh, this is the paradox. This is the wedge. Um, and, and we're going to talk about how the United States has become so polarized, even though our opinions on issues are nuanced across a bell curve and actually haven't changed all that much um, on a lot of issues over the past 20 years, especially the most divisive ones like abortion. So how did the United States become so polarized and why? Right? And that's, that's the name of this talk. It pays to polarize. The big question, qui bono, who benefits? So we can measure that political polarization is actually happening. This is not a false phenomenon. So uh, over one way to do that is we measure how Congress voted over the years. And back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, what tended to happen was that, yeah, Republicans would, would vote together much of the time and Democrats would vote together much of the time. But we saw a lot of cross voting. We saw a lot of Republicans that voted with Democrats and a lot of Democrats have voted Republic, with Republicans. Um, and in, the, in particular in the 70s, if we didn't color in a map of who is who, it'd be very hard to pick out who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of cross-party voting. And in particular, what it was was a lot of temporary coalitions being built among both parties to go vote for something. So you might have, you know, Republicans and Democrats in the Northwest all going and voting for something. Um, or in the Southeast, right? And um, that uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. So we imagine a cell dividing, right? They used to they used to kind of like get in the middle and and talk to each other a bunch, uh, and now they've split up pretty much entirely. Um, where and this has been true since the mid to late nineties, where Republicans and Democrats pretty much always vote party line. It's very little overlap, very little cross party voting, um, and. What's interesting, of course, is this reflects many parliamentary systems, so it might seem healthy. Um, the U.S. system is very different. We've talked about this in a few other ways. It's not what it was designed for. It's not how it was designed to work. And so right now we have parties pretty much only voting the party line. And what that means is that Congress is polarized, right? There are, you know, anytime something comes up, there's two positions on it. The Republicans vote Republican and the Democrats vote Democrat. And it didn't used to be that way. Congress has become more polarized. So there are a lot of other ways we can show how polarized the United States has become. Um, some of them are in wedged. So we can talk about uh, mutual antipathy, mutual antipathy being, um, you know, how much Republicans and Democrats hate each other. And mutual antipathy is at an all-time high. It's grown since the mid-90s into the 2000s into, you know, the mid-2010s. And I'm, I'm sure once Gallup measures it again, it will be higher than ever. Here in 2019, um, Republicans and Democrats hate each other more than more than ever before, um, enough to the point that over a third uh, and approaching a half 
of Republicans and Democrats say that the other party is a threat to the nation. Right. So basically there's this idea that that among people within a certain party, they literally think that that the other side is out to do bad things to the country. They're not well-intentioned people who disagree with us anymore, right? Who have different opinions, different perspectives, who are just maybe just wrong, right? Um, it's that they're bad people now. Um, this is measurable, um, and Gallup loves. Well, they don't. I'm sure they don't love to measure it, but they measure it, um, and and the the change is stark. So the big question is. If we become so polarized, but it's not because Americans' opinions have grown more extreme on average, um, you know, why have we become more polarized? And the reason is it pays to polarize. So the, you know, the interesting thing we need to keep in mind as we talk about this is we have seen tribal allegiances and identities, labels, self-labels shift dramatically since the 90s, even though policy positions have not, right? So people's policy positions, fairly consistent among issues like guns, abortion, a lot about the economy, but how people identify, how Americans identify, what labels they put on themselves has changed dramatically. And it's gone from more lumpy towards, you know, most most people identify as one way and some as the other towards, uh, you know, it's very 50-50 now. And one of the reasons this happens is that we use much more polarizing campaign tactics. So if we talk about abortion, we don't talk about, you know, people don't go up on the pulpit and talk about, you know, hey, what is the, you know, there's an interesting philosophical question here about exactly at what point is a fetus uh, a being with rights? Is it near the beginning? Is it somewhere in the middle? Is it near the end? Is it after it comes out? You know, uh, philosophical quandary here and, and you know, what, what measurable ways can we, you know, potentially agree on figuring this out? No, no, this does not happen, right? People talk about a war on women as if people are getting in, together in a, uh, in a room and going, ah, yes, how are we going to beat the women in this war today? Um, or a war on life where people get together in a room and say, oh, how are we going to murder babies today? Um, and this is, the, this is the rhetoric we use, and it, it sinks in. When talking about LGBT issues, right? You'd better be in line uh, or else you're just a bigot, right? You're, you're a whatever phobe uh, if you don't agree with a specific set of policy ideas. Or you're waging a war on family, on American traditional values, on ideals. Um, you know, and, and that's, of course, why you feel your way about LGBT issues. Because you're, you're going after, you know, you want to tear down American traditions. Um, you know, when we talk about guns, we don't talk about, hey, what is what is the right balance of, um, you know, of, of individual freedom and responsibility versus, you know, public policy to, to, you know, restrict access of the wrong kinds of weapons to potentially the wrong kinds of people. We talk about people, you know, we talk about the left assaulting the Second Amendment and we talk about the right being in the hands of the pro-gun lobby. Um, and what starts to happen, of course, is that we start to fall into these roles, don't we? So... You know, at some point we find ourselves maybe on the left saying, well, maybe we should go take down the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, we'll at the one hand say we're not coming after your guns. And on the other hand, say, let's go get the guns. And the right wing will say, well, of course, we're not part of the pro-gun lobby. And, and then I'll flock to do whatever the NRA wants. Right. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, if we talk about the economy, are you in the pocket of big oil or you're in the pocket of the big government swamp? 
all that stuff. Um, I've got two quick quotes for you. So one of them, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, uh, 2014, said, if the Republicans take control of the Senate, um, you know, this election, civilization as we know it is at risk. So, you know, you can think about how many times people have predicted World War III with various presidents. Um, But this is something that even our top politicians do. Um, And I remember a National Review quote that uh, that I ended up reading that said, Barack Obama is America's most dangerous demagogue. So it's 350 million people. President Barack Obama, definitely the single most dangerous. Um, And this is stuff that people take to heart, right? In part because it feels good, in part because they're already polarized. They're already tribal. They're already fighting a war. And so this is stuff that just feeds the, uh, you know, feeds the hungry belly of war fighting. So why do politicians do this? Why do they polarize people? Um, You know, you'd think normally that politicians would want to run to the center, right, in order to be able to scoop up the most votes. Um, Because, you know, if you run to the center, you, you get everyone, you know, let's say you're right winger, you run to the center, you get everyone to the right of you and people in the middle. And if you're left winger, you get everyone to the left of you and, and people in the middle. But the problem is that assumes that everyone um, is equally engaged, but they're not, right? Guess who the least engaged people are? They're the people with mixed opinions. They're the people who are somewhat moderate, who are in the middle, who don't feel like they're part of a war tribe, right? Feeling like you're part of a war tribe is very motivating. Um, think of countries who go to war. Right? And what they do with propaganda to get people engaged, to enlist, to buy war bonds, to plant victory gardens. Right? So it's, been, it's, you know, it's an easily observable phenomenon that consistently liberal and consistently conservative people vote the most. And, and turnout is a big part of winning an election. So you want to not only appeal to consistently liberal and consistently conservative people, but you also want to make people who are on the fence, more consistently liberal, more consistently conservative. Make them angry, make them afraid, they're more likely to vote. Same thing with contributing money to a campaign. Consistently liberal and consistently conservative people donate by far the most money. And you need money to win a campaign. Not only is this true of, you know, of lobbying or, or asking corporations to donate, although as we've talked about before, corporations tend to give equally to both parties. Um, they're, you know, presumably their incentive is just trying to make sure that whoever gets into power is on their side, but individual contributors, um, who make up, you know, uh, the, the majority of campaign funding, they're going to vote with their heart or they're, you know, they're going to donate with their heart. So we not only want to appeal to these people, but we want to make more of them on our side, more consistently conservative and liberal. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there is a incentive to make people feel like they're more part of this war tribe and respond to these war-like incentives. Um, one way that we know that it works and we know how effective it is, is that if we look at polling uh, during sort of the middling years of Obamacare, um, or, or sorry, of the uh, Affordable Care Act, um, we saw that, you know, not surprisingly, about 20% of Republicans supported it, about 45% of independents, and about, you know, 65 to 75% of Democrats at different times supported the bill, right? Democrats love it, Republicans hate it. Um, but that's when we poll about the Affordable Care Act. If we call it Obamacare instead of the Affordable Care Act, Democrats are 15% more likely to support it. Uh, and Republicans are 15% less likely to support it. So guess what? Everyone loves calling it Obamacare. Democrats love it, they get more support. Republicans love it, they get less support. So all of a sudden, we've taken a very humdrum policy name, and everyone wants to call it, you know, this kind of flashy propaganda name. Because uh, when you, you know, turns out when you take the Democratic president and slap his name on it, uh, people, um, you know, people respond exactly as you'd expect them to. And so there's an incentive for all of these issues to call them by the flashy names, by both sides. No one wants to kind of calm this rhetoric war down. because. They all win by it. If we think of the media, right? We look at MSNBC and Fox, right? They're getting, um, they're all getting lots of views. Their ratings are great. You know whose ratings have plummeted? ABC, NBC, CNN, uh, sorry, ABC, NBC, CBS, right? There's no Walter Cronkite anymore. Uh, the people who get the best ratings are the ones that tick us off the most. If we think of the print media, right? Well, print, not even. But if we think of online print media, if we think of Vox, if we think of Breitbart, if we think of Huffington Post, look at the headlines. See what they say. They're designed to make you angry. They're designed to make you um, afraid. And they're designed to make you feel like you're part of a tribe and just point out, all these examples of bad people who are not part of your tribe to reinforce that sense of tribalism because people click these headlines, right? They're using the more primitive, you know, back part of their brains. This is observed. This is, um, you know, this is, this is like scientifically obvious that we're not using our rational thinking minds when we're clicking these headlines. These are snap decisions. This is some, a decision that's made before it gets to the rational thinking part of the brain. So there's a powerful incentive to create, um, you know, bombastic, angry headlines um, to get you to click so that they get advertising revenue. They're trapped in the cycle, but the ones who are good at it make a lot of money from it. Um, so they're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep making you angry. Um, and even, as it turns out, the... Um, the articles from the other side that you hate so much, you're more likely to share those. Look what Vox said. Look what Fox said. Look what HuffPost said. Isn't this outrageous? 
And so this stuff gets shared, not only by the people who are supposed to eat it up, but by the people who are supposed to hate it. It pays to polarize. Um, you know, how many times, for example, are we going to call Trump Hitler? Or when Obama was in office, how many times are we going to call him Hitler? Before the economic incentive wears off, before people stop clicking, stop reading um, about it. Uh, the president will be called Hitler by, you know, less reputable media as long as people keep clicking it and keep deciding that they're either going to be really ticked off someone called them Hitler or really excited that someone called them Hitler. So what's happened is that as ABC, CBS, NBC have lost uh, readership, as uh, small newspapers across the country have lost readership, people have consolidated what news media they consume into just a few sources. Um, and these sources grow ever more powerful, and they keep repeating what they're doing to gather viewers in, making you angry, getting you emotionally worked up, um, because it keeps you glued in. It keeps you watching. It's deeply psychological. So uh, conservatives consistently just watch Fox News, um, and liberals consistently are tuning into CNN, NPR, The New York Times, and MSNBC. Um, and it's because they're hearing the stuff they want to hear. It's because they're hearing the stuff that they enjoy hearing. It makes you feel good to be part of the tribe. It makes you feel good to be told you're right. It makes you feel good to be told that there are bad people out there um, who not only disagree with you, but are monsters out to hurt you and hurt America. So the ratings of the more conventional Walter Cronkite type uh, news agencies have plummeted because they attempted to appeal to a broad audience and it did not work. So for those who are saying we only need better media, we only need someone who's going to present a fair and balanced viewpoint, we only need someone who's going to tell the truth, they're out there. We're just not watching them. Same goes for politicians. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are uniters who could bring the country back together. Um, who could work together, who could forge compromises. We're just not voting for them. So they're not going to get into Congress. This incentive is even true for advocacy groups. So Planned Parenthood, for example, right? It's a, you know, 98% of its job is just healthcare, right? Cancer screenings, uh, reproductive, you know, reproductive health, checking for, you know, all sorts of stuff that could be going on for women who, you know, they believe are underserved. A lot of what they're doing is giving out birth control. A lot of what they're doing is giving out, um, you know, education. And some of what they do is, you know, support people who are looking for abortions. And so, you know, obviously they're under a lot of fire. But what does Planned Parenthood's front page look like? Well, they talk about three ways to take action. They're talking about uh, the gag rule. They're talking about rejecting Brett Kavanaugh and getting involved in, you know, in trying to politic the senatorial confirmation process, uh, the Supreme Court. Um, you know, they need you to donate. And the way that they get you to donate is by making sure that you believe that if you don't donate, bad people are going to come after what's important to you. 
Um, you need to be afraid. You need to be angry. And when you are, you will donate. Brett Kavanaugh getting nominated to the office was great for Planned Parenthood's pocketbooks. And everyone needs money to survive, right? So they're trapped in this cycle. They can't get out of it or else they will die because people won't donate to them unless they're angry or unless they're scared. It pays to polarize. We can the same, think of the same thing with uh, you know, the NRA, right? So a headline from the NRA recently, Levi's teams with billionaire Michael Bloomberg to attack gun rights. So a jeans brand uh, you know, decided to put um, a no-gun logo on its clothing, right? Whoop-de-doo. But uh, guess what? The NRA's headlines are all about how your gun rights are under attack, how uh, you know, billionaires are throwing money at um, trying to take away your gun rights. And guess what? We need money from you to fight back against those terrible people. Anyone who gets emails from political campaigns, anyone who gets snail mail from organizations like this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every time they're trying to raise money, they're trying to make you angry and scared. It pays to polarize. So what's happened is that these hardcore partisans have started to become kind of so outraged with people that disagree with them that they block them out. So the vast majority of uh, Republicans and Democrats, sorry, excuse me, the vast majority of consistently conservative and consistently liberal uh, Americans just don't hang out with people that don't agree with them um, and that they've stopped being friends with people because of politics. They said, you know, I just, I don't want to even hear what you have to say anymore. And that number grows all the time. Whereas people who are, you know, generically liberal, mixed or generically conservative, they're far less likely to block out people um, and stop being friends with people. They're far less likely to put themselves in a bubble. And so, again, for those of you who are saying, hey, I don't feel like I'm part of these tribes. Well, guess what? Most Americans aren't. We're just not getting the attention. So this blocking behavior obviously happens on social media as well. And so as Americans, you know, as partisan Americans do this to themselves, they put themselves deeper and deeper into an echo chamber. Um, and the deeper they go, the harder line they get. They start the more they hear just stuff that makes them angry or makes them afraid or makes them feel like they're right. And the less they hear anyone saying, hey, you know, here's an idea that's slightly different that might be interesting. And I'd love to talk to you about it. Right. That discourse isn't happening for them. They're getting more and more into the war. And so there's a vicious cycle going on. What's happening is, as, you know, as the incentives towards polarizing people drive politicians, drive the media, drive active, um, you know, activist groups towards you know, spreading polarizing messaging in order to get elected, in order to get money, Americans respond. Um, a good number of them do. And what they do is they become harder and harder line. Uh, this feeds back into the system. So what happens is, as those Americans, those you know, partisan Americans become harder line, what happens is actually more and more Americans who don't feel like they resonate with either the hard left or the hard right drop out of the system. So part of what we're seeing is that um, since the mid-2000s, the number of Republicans and Democrats who are registered has plummeted. And the number of independents has increased, independence has increased substantially. And so what's happening is 
These independents are leaving the parties because they say, you don't represent me anymore. But then what happens? The, the parties become smaller and they only have their hardliners left. And so what happens is during primaries, guess what? In order to win the election, you have to appeal to the people in your party. You have to appeal to these hardliners. And so suddenly we have elections in which the only people available to vote for are the ones that hardliner conservatives and hardliner Democrat or hardliner liberals like. And so it's really a false choice for the rest of Americans. Um, and so no matter what, you're going to be getting more charged, more extreme people in Congress. Um, you're going to be getting, you know, the, the media that remains is going to be more charged, more polarizing. Um, and it's going to feed back into the system. It's going to make more people more angry. So it becomes a vicious cycle um, that, you know, it's not entirely clear how to stop it yet. And so that's how we ended up with this, um, you know, kind of strange situation in which the attention in politics, the attention in media, the noise uh, does not represent this kind of bell curve of opinions that most Americans have. Those most Americans who don't identify, you know, you can identify left, you can identify right, you can identify whatever, but those who aren't part of the angry tribe, they're left out. And so if you're watching, you know, if, if you're sitting there like gleefully enjoying, um, you know, the fight that, that Trump has with all of his enemies, or you're sitting there gleefully enjoying the, the fights that, you know, a lot of Democrats pick, especially on Twitter, and you're going, yeah, like this is really resonant for you then you're part of the, you know, you're part of these hardcore tribes. And, and in a way, you're having fun, right? You're angry, you're scared, but you're having fun. And if those kind of people don't resonate with you, um, if you're sitting there just kind of frustrated with your head in your hands, wondering what the heck has gone wrong, you're probably not part of the tribes. So the long road to getting back um, includes, you know, changing incentives. It's not entirely clear how to do that. Um, some of it is about changing how we vote um, in order to change a little bit of how we, um, you know, of, of how politicians are incentivized to try to win people's votes. So I happen to be a fan of ranked choice voting. I think it's, I think it's one approach. Uh, but ultimately what we need to do is attack the incentives. Um, there's no going back. The things that have changed to kind of allow this to happen um, and allow these incentives to take root are some of them are technological, some of them are just sociological. Um, people have learned more about psychology. People have learned more about how to advertise. People have learned more, um, and technology has enabled us. They've learned more how to manipulate us, um, and it pays money, so they do it. So the incentives have to be changed. The consumers have to change. We need to change. The only way ultimately that we're going to break out of this is by no longer consuming what's being thrown at you, right? Um, especially that, you know, that large bulk of Americans who could be watching media but aren't because they find it frustrating. That large bulk of Americans who, um, you know, could be participating in primaries but chose not to because they're frustrated with the parties. That large bulk of people has to be reactivated, has to be re-energized. Because uh, it turns out that, you know, being conservative or liberal or being, you know, consistently very conservative or very liberal, you know, you don't, it, there's no correlation of that in being wealthier or being smarter um, and being anything. So if the rest of the crowd got back in the mix, um, you know, they'd have the money to 
be able to contribute to campaigns as well. They'd, you know, be able to vote just like everyone else. They'd be able to watch, you know, read the news and watch TV just like everyone else. Um, but we have to, we have to change the demand. Uh, and if we change the demand, the supply will change in turn. Um, that's a long road. It's one I don't know how to fix, but uh, this is how, you know, I have in my research seen, you know, how our country's changing, why it's changing, um, and what's the root cause. So I don't know how to fix it, but understanding why something's broken is is the most important first step. So I hope you enjoyed. Um, and that, dear listeners, uh, is the show. So next time we will be getting Xander back. We might have an exciting interview coming up, um, and I hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. Uh, for those of you who want to see just the slide deck, uh, I'm going to post that in the show notes. And for those of you who want to see the YouTube video, I'm posting that in the show notes as well. Um, and until we talk again, um, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.